Hi, I'd like to welcome you to the Crucible of Thought podcast. I'm Brandon, and I'm here to share things that interest me and things that I think the Lord has brought to my attention. And today's episode is titled, Labels. I had a bit of an epiphany the other day. I recently had occasion to host a group of non-cis, non-heterosexual people in my house for a few hours. It wasn't a group I would naturally be drawn to spend time with. I guess I'm far too traditionally minded to seek out such companionship. But I found myself having a very pleasant time nonetheless. These people were simply fun, each one in their own way, and so the experience gave me pause. Why was I quite comfortable on the one hand, and yet uncomfortable at the same time? Each one of those individuals had a very different and unique personality. Their style of humor, their thought processes, their likes and dislikes were apparent. In a very real sense, in that way, they were no different than anyone else that I know. And yet, each one of them rather blatantly crossed over one or more of the lines I grew up to expect that separate people into what I might have previously called natural groupings. Each one had chosen to identify some aspect of their being outside of those norms. Gay, transgender, non-binary, demisexual, omnisexual. There were more labels present in that group than there were individuals. And here was that epiphany I mentioned. I realized that I was enjoying these people without any particular concern for those labels that they used about themselves. Those labels might be useful in the individual case if I'd wanted to understand the person at a deeper level, but they made no difference in the moment of simply being with them and engaging them intellectually and emotionally. As I pondered this, I further realized what used to make me so uncomfortable around such people. I couldn't pin them into only one of two bins, female and male, with all the normal heterosexual expectations and affections and clothing and actions that come with it. So essentially, I realized that I could enjoy each person for exactly what they were without trying to figure out which bin to fit them into, or put a little differently, without trying to assign just one of two labels to them. Instead, the labeling space was much, much larger. So large, in fact, that it becomes easier to simply abandon the labels and appreciate them as people, not as regards their proximity to one of my exactly and only two preferred labels. Well, a few days later, I happened to be in a woman's beauty store with my wife, and as I waited for her to select the lipstick shade she wanted, the most curious person showed up next to us, also looking at lipsticks. This person was about six feet tall, rather high heels, fishnet stockings, Daisy Duke shorts, a halter top with maybe C-cup breasts and extremely prominent nipples showing through the fabric, and a very manly, mustachioed, but made-up face topped with a cowboy hat. Okay. Well, my old-school conservative brain immediately started to try and figure out, are we looking at a biological male in women's clothing and falsies, or a biological female on testosterone? Honestly, the cues were highly confusing. Prominent breasts and nipples and general female body shape, but with a mustache and rugged male facial features. But in about three seconds, a second thing occurred to me. I didn't really care at all. I was intrigued by what I was seeing, but almost as fast as it started, I abandoned any need to pin a sexuality and gender onto this individual. And I also realized that I was surprisingly comfortable in this person's presence, which I'm sure I would not have been just a couple months ago. 
If anything, I was intrigued and curious, but quite willing to pay very little more attention and just go on with my day. If anything, I would have wanted to spend a little time talking with them to understand them, not to judge or shun them. So in just these two events, I discovered that my label-happy brain had set aside its normal process, and that was somewhat transformative. Well, all this has me thinking hard about labels. In particular, what is it about humans that we seem to need labels? What is it about today's LGBTQ-friendly younger crowd that A, loves labels in a mind-bending explosion of variety, but B, simultaneously is utterly unconcerned with labels at the same time? I've been working through Faith After Doubt, the book by Brian McLaren, with some friends for the last couple months, and I believe it's thinking about the pattern of human maturation, along with its analog for spiritual maturation, applies here. And some of Richard Rohrer's work in the book Falling Upward applies here also. In the earliest stages of our lives, either physical or spiritual, there's a rather strict duality inherent to us, and also used to instruct us. Things are either this or that. They're either X or not X. And our young brains are still learning how to identify things correctly. And there's a natural compulsion to categorize, to identify, to label. If you've ever spent any time around a toddler and they trust you enough to freely interact with you, you've probably been bombarded with questions that are all some form of, what's this? And in all likelihood, giving the answer, well, I don't know, is entirely unsatisfactory to them. And as the adult, you almost feel compelled to avoid uncertainty in your answer. In the same way, it seems to me, when we interact with a spiritually young person, we'll get bombarded with identify this questions, and just like a toddler, not having the spiritual answer is frowned upon. So even for the complex gray zone questions, we tend to pick sides on every topic rather than saying, well, I don't really know and I'm not sure we can know. Somehow it feels dangerous to admit there are unknowables. And maybe that's fine for responding to a young questioner. We have to get established in our thinking somehow before we can begin working with nuance. But should we stay there? So as I consider my interaction with this group of queer individuals, I see two interesting things existing simultaneously in opposition to one another. Each of them had selected labels for themselves. This one was bisexual and demiromantic, that one was transmasculine, another was cisgender but demisexual, and so forth. But the one thing that they all agreed upon was that those labels were merely informational, subject to change, and only to be used to aid in understanding, not to be used to discriminate or isolate. So those labels were inherently inclusionary. Now, by contrast, with my upbringing, labels were almost always used to establish boundaries and reject the nonconformist. So those labels were always inherently exclusionary. Well, I'm reminded of Paul's words from 1 Corinthians 13, and everyone knows this. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I have also been fully known. But now abide faith, hope, love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. So catch this sentence of Paul. 
when I became a man, I did away with childish things. And that's tied directly to the maturity of love. Now, when I think about labels then and how they might tie to love, and by love, by the way, I don't mean romance or sexual activity, but instead how we treat others and bring them into relationship. Uh, love is inclusionary, not exclusionary. Now, to be sure, there are times where love means boundaries, but I think about how we typically apply boundaries, and it's very exclusionary. We want to create and enforce spaces within which we're comfortable, where otherness can be rejected and excluded, and especially to be used to help differentiate us from them, to build our tribe's sense of self and superiority. It feels loving for those of us within the tribe, but we don't spend much time thinking about the true welfare of those outside our tribe. Well, think about the definition of queer for a moment. Now, these days it's almost exclusively used to refer to gender and sexuality, but the root definition before that took place was from Webster's Dictionary, quote, differing in some way from what is usual or normal. Well, usual or normal, of course, establish a binary. It's either normal or it's not. It's either usual or it's not. But let's consider for the different definition how Britannica discusses the term queer in their article on queer sexual politics. They say, queer theory argues that academics and activists rely on and enforce dichotomous notions of sex, gender, and sexuality within their work. These binaries may be male-female, man-woman, masculine-feminine, heterosexual, homosexual. Queer theory problematizes these binaries by arguing that they reify difference and hierarchy, and as a consequence, reinforce the notion of the minority as abnormal and inferior. For example, homosexual desire as inferior to heterosexual desire, or acts of femininity as inferior to acts of masculinity. Thus, queer theory is a call to transgress conventional understandings of gender and sexuality, and to disrupt the boundary that separates heterosexuality from homosexuality. Instead, queer theorists argue that the heterosexual-homosexual division must be challenged to open space for the multiple identities, embodiments, and discourses that fall outside assumed binaries. End of quote. So, essentially, queer is all about anti-binaries. Put differently, it rejects simple categorization. But even when a complicated categorization or labeling has been achieved, it's still largely irrelevant to how we treat someone. They're people. End of story. They either deserve our love as individual human beings, or they don't. We can't discriminate who we extend love to. Perhaps you'll notice that as I've been speaking, I've been using the words individuals and peoples and person. I refuse to call them transgenders or queers because those are also categorizations that are used to separate and boundary keep and isolate ourselves. I've seen the same, and I agree with this, about using the phrase enslaved people instead of slaves. They're people that by circumstances were enslaved by others, or are queer, or are transgender, or in general are A, people, that are then B, something labeled. The Bible addresses categorization many times. One particular word is prosopolempsia, which for various translations uses the word favoritism or partiality or respect of persons. 
And there are four specific verses that use this Greek word, Romans 2.11, Ephesians 6.9, Colossians 3.25, and James 2.1. And they address the relationship between different people groups, Jew versus Greek, for example, or different economic status, enslaved versus master. Many other New Testament verses, and in fact many of them Jesus' own teachings, also address how we're not supposed to change how we treat people due to our perceptions of them. So, stepping back for a bit, why do we categorize or label people? At the core, it's a very natural thing. Our brains optimize processing by looking for patterns and then comparing incoming data to those existing patterns. It's a very functional system that allows for rapid response to new information. Instead of starting from scratch with new data, we can look for pattern matches. And this process happens from infancy. Uh, I found an article in the Trends in Cognitive Science journal, which discusses the process, and I'll put the link in the show notes. And it also discusses the pitfalls that it can cause in stereotyping, prejudice, and discrimination. So our brain uses this categorization process to place us in groups or categories to give us a sense of safety and security inside our own group. But unfortunately, that enables us to put others into groups of the other. So an essential component of early learning, at any rate, is looking for patterns in the incoming data. And the brain then reinforces those patterns with each new experience until the response is nearly instantaneous. So when we see, for example, a person with obvious breasts, our brain instantly identifies female. When we see a mustache, our brain instantly says male. Skin texture and musculature are also clues. Smooth and rounded are usually female. Rugged and lumpy are usually male. Clothing is more subtle, perhaps. High heels and fishnet stockings are usually female. Cowboy hat? Maybe a bit harder, but usually male, so you need secondary clues, such as hat collar or other clothing. So, obviously, when I saw the individual looking at lipsticks with us, the clues were very contradictory, and that was a source of potential stress. Because along with the identification of male-female comes a cultural set of expectations on how to treat the person. Or more to the point, the difficulty in immediate identification didn't give me much needed clues. So in the absence of a clear understanding of this person's identity, I didn't automatically understand the necessary interaction. It wasn't simple. I wouldn't know whether to treat them as male or female. And therein lies, I believe, the major point of stress for many people in dealing with queer persons. People want simplicity. They want easily understood response patterns and expectations. It feels like an imposition on them to be required to figure out how to treat somebody. Having to ask another person's preferred pronouns, well, that imposes personally. It would be far simpler to see a pair of breasts and say she, her, hers or to see a mustache and say, he, him, his. But breasts and a mustache? Nope. No such simplicity is suddenly possible. Same thing with a total lack of cues in an androgynous, non-binary person. And so the labels break down. The easy and convenient binary is gone. In its place, I would suggest, is the requirement to love. And love, as Jesus defines it for us in hundreds of unique yet well-synthesized ways throughout the Gospels, is self-sacrifice for the benefit of others. And I don't mean what we think would benefit them, because that's not self-sacrificing. That's, that's self-serving. Sometimes 
or often, love means truly respecting someone else's labels and choices for how they need to be approached, even if, or especially if, it's inconvenient to us. So in that abruptly transformative moment in the presence of a handful of queer people in my living room, something toggled in my brain. I suddenly didn't need the simplicity of my own preferred labels to feel comfortable. I could enjoy these beautiful people, each of them far more unique than I'm used to encountering. It required of me a lot of flexibility, and also curiosity about how each of them preferred to interact. A lot of that I could gain by simply observing. Some of it required me to completely set aside my inherent desire to pick either an interact with a male or interact with a female rule set. Instead, I had to be thoughtful and careful in each interaction. So there's an interesting side effect that I can see from interacting with queer people, by the way. As I've been more attentive to other people and their emotions in the last few years, I've heard more and more stories about the difficulty women have in male-dominated spaces, because they're accustomed to hyper-masculine men running roughshod over those around them. It's a consequence, I suppose, of men having rule over social interactions for millennia. They get to set the rules and expect women to just abide by those rules. Men are generally free in male-dominated situations to treat others poorly, specifically by not really caring how their interactions affect those around them. Unfortunately, it's just part of being manly. So, in this new era with many queer people, an interesting thing happens. Queer people are intimately accustomed to paying attention to how their companions desire to be treated, what labels they use, what permissions they give for touch and personal space. It requires a level of personal humility and tolerance that manly men are unaccustomed to giving or would actively resist giving. In the past, I used to wonder why so many women seemed more accepting of queer people than did men. I encountered very few men willing to tolerate queerness, and I used to see it as a failing of women, but now I'm changing my mind and I see it as good and desirable. And that's because I'm beginning to suspect it has a lot to do with women feeling unsafe around self-interested domineering men who are unwilling to be instructed by others or to have others place requirements on their interactions. Basically, they willfully and aggressively ignore boundaries. But in a certain sense, accepting queerness is all about honoring the boundaries that others set. So perhaps it isn't surprising that women would be natively comfortable in these queer spaces. They finally have encountered people while even if they don't share the value systems, know that they're safe around them. For the most part, queer people are simply more willing to honor boundaries. Put a bit differently, queer people are better at showing a biblical kind of love towards each other, treating others how they would wish to be treated, and accepting and cherishing others despite differences and shortcomings. And that's exactly what Jesus described in John 15, 12, and 13. This is my commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. And it doesn't have to be actually dying on a cross. Instead, it's a million small deaths, daily setting aside our personal preferences and comfort for the sake of those around us. And perhaps it all starts with rethinking our relationship with labels. Thanks for listening, and I appreciate every moment that you spend with me. We'll talk again soon.